0: invite us to open our Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be finishing our study of this great chapter. This morning we're going to be picking up in verse 41, and we're going to take it to the end. So in John chapter 6, verse 41... John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Jews grumbled about Jesus. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, everyone comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you, in verse 44, that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, just like we just sang, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that you are living. You are alive. You hear us. And so please, in hearing us, answer this request. That you would come and you yourself would teach us. That you would give your spirit and your spirit would give life. We ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I stand before you this morning uh, a little bit in weakness and much trembling, uh, partially because of the aftershock, I think, upon my body from Mount Madness. Yesterday, a couple of you guys were pounding on me, and my body feels it, and so I'm weak and trembling but also because of the text in front of us. Uh, dear ones, when all the world will not, and even those that we thought were our own, depart, will we, will you and I yet stand with Jesus? Seeing, seeing an exodus away from him, will we say, as these here towards the end of our text, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Disciples of Jesus take Him at His word straight away. Straight away. Truths that others find intolerable, true disciples find treasurable. Even when we don't understand it all. We won't. We trust Him. We hear Him. And uh, we hear the word about Him. And we believe. But not all do. Not all have faith. And this is the scenario that we get to learn from today. Jesus is now in a synagogue at Capernaum. uh, Continuing His teaching on the bread of life. And what He has to say is judged. You heard it. To be a hard saying. And as that's what we want to develop first over verses 41 to 59 this morning, I pray that you and I will have softened hearts to receive hard things. Because the folks in our text, very plainly, they don't. Just the twelve do, it seems. Jesus has been as plain as ever, and yet these in the text are being as Israel as ever, we might say. They are grumbling about Him. And specifically, they're taking issue as the leaders did uh, in John chapter 5 with His claim to be not first of earth. It's not even so much about His being some sort of bread anymore. White bread, you know, honey wheat, multigrain, whatever. It has nothing to do with that in the least. It's that He's the bread, verse 41, you see it there, that came down from heaven. So, at the very least, he's claiming to be of heavenly origin and at most to have no actual origin at all that is to be eternal or to be divine. And again, we are in the privileged position here. We've read the prologue. We've studied the prologue. John chapter 1. These folks have not. And yet, see here, they think they know all that there is to know. About Jesus. Is not this Jesus? Is not this Jesus, they say, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Okay, so they, they know Him to be a man just like them. Uh, a man conceived and, and then born and, and raised by a mom and a dad that they are very, very familiar with. They have no inkling Of what we call the incarnation. No idea how he could be from above. And let's be alerted. Let's be alerted there, you and I. That the mysteries of the gospel are very great. They are very great. They're within the reach of the simplest person. And yet they're still mysterious enough to just fix the gaze of angels for all eternity. So let's be careful that we avoid thinking we know all there is to know about Jesus. We've got it all figured out. No mystery here. Let's be careful that we never so domesticate Jesus that we see no divine glory in Him. Nothing of all that's meant to captivate our souls to Him for all eternity. Let's be careful, that is, to believe all that God has revealed about Him in the Word of God. All that Christ Himself has revealed of Himself. Self-disclosed. And, to our text, let's get that no one, the beginning of the hard saying, okay, no one, will ever do that. No one will ever believe that. Once, and then for the rest of their lives, apart from a work of God's grace. But we will try our hand at it. You see, these think, as Adam's children are like to do, that they can readily solve what, in truth can only be known and then loved by divine revelation twice over, once in the Word of God, and then by the work of the Spirit in our hearts. There's no question that God has made us to be uniquely intelligible creatures. It's just that believing in Christ for salvation is an act above all we might discover by that fallen intellect. By it, a person may rather ably read and process something like Stephen Wellam's book on Christology. But that in no way means they've necessarily cast their souls upon the crucified and risen Lord Jesus for the salvation of their souls. Salvation is not in that kind of comprehension. There is content to believe. It just won't ever be believed By way of merely human abilities, independent of the enabling grace of God. We we tend to think we can come to Jesus on our own volition. But what does our Lord say twice in the divine text, first time in verse 44? He says. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. So let's just expand on that the way that Jesus intends and goes on to do in our passage. He means that no one can truly know Him so as to Come to Him for eternal life except by a work of God as we'll come to see in the heart. Without this, no one at all would ever believe in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, that's happened to you. You've been drawn by the Father. And beneath this, then, is the consistent assertion of Scripture that we've been spiritually incapacitated sin. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, one, dead in our sins and trespasses. We have no will to leave sin behind and to love the light of the gospel or to believe the word of God about Jesus. None at all. No will at all or power to escape the chains of sin for Christ. So just hear it again. So it's not just me. You're hearing Jesus here. He says, again, no one can come to me unless God draws them. And this draw then, to be clear, is not a general draw upon all people. It's not a draw that that brings every will to a place of moral neutrality, giving us sort of a, a jumping place where we can then choose or not to believe in Christ it's called prevenient grace that's not this kind of drawing here this draw has a definite audience and it has a definite effect verse 44 is the other way of putting what Jesus has already said in verse 37 in verse 37 Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here in verse 44, it's the negative side of that or the flip side of that. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so you put these two together and what we get is this. They teach that this drawing is inevitably given to all those that the Father has given to Christ. It has a definite audience. And it has a definite effect. What is the effect? What is is the effect here? He says, everyone who is drawn by God like this will come to Christ. This is what's known as The effectual call. The effectual call where God effectively sets Christ before us in all of His saving beauty and sets us free at the same time from our bondage to sin and our blindness due to ignorance. So we desire, we really do desire nothing more in all the universe than to be united to Jesus. Just like that. So, the doctrine is that until the Father draws effectually, no one can come to Jesus savingly. People can come, as these folks have in our passage. They can come to Jesus, but apart from this grace, they will only ultimately grumble at Him. The simple point Jesus is trying to make to them is just that salvation belongs not to man, but to the Lord. And what's interesting, if we hear all this, it initially grates. What's interesting is that we don't mind that truth at all and say, 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, on the lips of David after he's just put Goliath down. And what does he say? The battle belongs to the Lord. And all God's people say, Yes, he did it. David did something too, but the Lord did it. Okay. We don't mind it at all with military salvation. We don't mind it at all in Psalm 3, verse 8, again with David, as it relates to personal deliverance and trial. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't mind it at all in Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, in his praise. Remember that he's been spewed out onto the shores of Nineveh. We don't mind at all hearing Jonah say salvation belongs to the Lord as it relates to preserving him for the surprising advance of the, the gospel of God there. In that pagan place. We don't mind it at all. Even as it relates to the sovereignty of God. And our own personal salvation. When we sing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That did something. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was what? Blind. And then suddenly now I see. We don't mind the effectual divine initiative there at all. And yet we may tend to mind it a bit or perhaps even a lot here on the lips of our sweetest Lord Jesus. Why is that? Let me just remind us of something. It is very natural to freely assume that we are bigger and better than we actually are. To believe against the steadfast testimony of God's word that we really are strong and mighty and that as we are, we really are capable of doing spell-binding wonders. Right? Right? the spiritual resurrection we need is then well within our grasp when in truth it's not. We might say, we little believe the biblical doctrine of sin and its murderous effect upon our souls. And relatedly, we tend then to believe very much that we are good society deserving of God's help when nothing could be further from the truth. Let us be quite sure that apart from Christ, God owes no person anything but the wage of their sin. Do hear it. God is not obligated by anything in you or me to save even one of us. So, that any sinner is drawn to Christ like this is, we see in Scripture, grace enough to captivate and shake and fill the halls of heaven with inexpressible joy in God for all eternity. One. And we know from Revelation there's going to be an innumerable multitude. And that's just it, dear ones. We've got to get this. How? Because God is God. He has designed a salvation that will bring Him and not us, not most, but all the glory for it. All the glory. If we get this, we get that all we all deserve is divine justice. So that, being heirs of divine grace, our hearts are filled to the brim, overflowing with thankfulness to God. He gets all that glory. And that again, is His great purpose in redemption. And Jesus, for His part, will not allow that to be forgotten amongst us. So we go on in verse 44 and following that all those who come to Him, all those He will then raise to glory, will have been taught by God as foretold in several New Covenant passages of the Old Testament. And this teaching is nothing more or less than just another explanation of what we're calling the effectual call. And yet here, this effectual call becomes exceedingly practical. It connects with regular gospel ministry. There is a teacher, praise the Lord. There is a teacher, Jesus says, who has the power to effect the truth that's been taught. By which he means the truth about himself and that that teacher is none other than God. And in verse 45, we hear again that when God teaches in this way, it is absolutely effective. Everyone, Jesus says, who has heard and learned, listen, from the Father, everyone comes to me. There it is. That's the effectual call. That's regenerating grace, enabling grace, whatever you want to call it. But as Jesus clarifies in verse 46, it is the imperceptible work of God in converting the soul to Christ. Right? It's not that we have seen the Father with our eyes and sat under His teaching in a classroom. It's that under the preaching of the gospel truth, the invisible God known fully only to Christ makes Christ savingly known to us in our very souls. And I say that it is exceedingly practical then because without this, as I've said, there is no hope of conversion at all. To say nothing of sanctification. These things are works of God. I have no power. You have no power to effect either of those things. It rests with God. So beloved, listen. If Jesus can be preaching the truth to, to no good effect. Go back and read through John 6. If Jesus can be preaching the truth to no good effect apart from this grace of God. What about us? If he needed it, if he relied upon that, if he hoped in that, if he thought nothing would come of his preaching without that grace of God, shouldn't we? Can I say, I've been very burdened for this in our church. the the teaching ministry of our church is not the ministry of a preacher only. Nor even of many good teachers. Jesus was the very best teacher that's ever existed on the planet. But the effect of His teaching was in the hands of His Father. dear ones the truly divine effectiveness of our ministry rests with the great teacher and therefore mainly i want us to hear this mainly then within the grasp of your prayers are we praying For the fruitfulness of the word. For souls to hear. And I don't just mean with their ears, that's nothing. But to go in the ear and down into the heart so they become new creatures. For them to hear and be saved. For us to hear after having been saved and be truly helped one week after another, after another, after another, all the way through to the end. We have no hope apart from His help. We do see again in verses 47 to 51 what happens when God attends like this, don't we? You see the lesson He teaches and can only, alone effect. It's that Jesus is the true bread of life, He convinces your soul of that reality. It's that Jesus is the gift of heaven to Adam's fallen race. It's that Jesus is the living God who in taking on flesh became like bread that can be broken to give divine life to all who eat of it. As he says in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And so if it's any help to us, do see that while we are not absolutely autonomous wills, neither are we then automatons. You and I may pit God's sovereignty over against our responsibility and vice versa. Jesus never does that. However, it's a problem to us. It is no problem to Jesus at all. In the same breath, He prioritizes the one and then He asserts the other. No one can believe in Christ crucified apart from God's effectual grace, His work in their hearts, and yet you must believe in Christ crucified in order to have eternal life. Uh, The theological term for that is compatibilism. And it's in the Bible. and So we have to believe it. Note, I did not say fully understand it. I said, believe it, trusting that a fuller understanding will come one fine day, and that Jesus never says a single thing but what is to the utmost advantage to your soul. Now then, <laughs> having been so long in so many of these debates, uh, he's almost comically said these things to silence their grumbling. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's okay. They continue on, and it's just disputing now. And you see, the issue's changed. It's no longer about his origin. Did he come down from heaven? It's, it's no longer just how can he be from above? It's how can this man, verse 52, give us his flesh to eat? Where where the one cannot discern his deity, the other cannot discern his cross. Uh, you, You put those two things together, God crucified. And we have something that is entirely impossible for a human being to believe. But for the grace of God. Nevertheless, To the point just made, see how Jesus, the perfect evangelist, responds to these unbelievers. He lays the burden of belief upon them. While adding, verse 53, they have no life original to their souls with which to do this. They must believe to live, but they have no life with which to believe. Don't you just love how Jesus humbles us? What he's doing is he's trying to cast the hope of our souls entirely upon the grace of God. That's what he's trying to do. And so contrary to many today, Jesus doesn't go, they don't get it. Okay, they don't get it. I've got to make it simpler still. I've got to lower the bar so that they can believe. Then they will get it. No, that's not what he does. Because Jesus knows the issue is not first mental. The issue is not first your brain power. That whole line of thought derives from the misguided thought that conversion is something that people can do for themselves. They've just got to figure it out. Sorry, no, that's not the case. It's much, much deeper than that. It's about their hearts being raised from the dead. Jesus, remember, he just went simple. Remember that from a week ago? They couldn't get it. So he's like, okay, let's go simple. Let's go as plain as I can possibly be here. He just did that and they're still disputing. Still grumbling. So what does he do? Make it easier? No, he makes it harder. Not harder to understand. Necessarily. But harder to accept. Harder to believe. Harder to love. Because, listen, at the end of the day, Jesus is about making and revealing true disciples. Who markedly find their all in Him. So, what does he say in verse 53 and onward? He says something that for any unconverted Jewish person would have been utterly off putting, utterly repulsive. He says, to live to God. They're all like, Yes, Jesus, that's what I want to hear about. You must. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everything Moses ever said is contrary to that. You can't eat the blood. You can't drink the blood. You can't do that. That's against the law. But you got to do that if you want to live to God now, says Jesus. Now, he's just connected eating and drinking to coming to and believing him. And so I don't think that they're thinking some kind of like cannibalism or something here. Uh, Regardless, The idea is that new and eternal life comes to the spiritually lifeless through the death of Jesus. Or to put it more impossibly, the only way to live to God forever is by feeding on Christ. And again, they're all like, yes! And then we go, Christ crucified. Now we say that and most of us I think go that makes sense. Christ crucified. That's unsurprising. No problem with that at all. Grown up all my life hearing that. Christ crucified. But to them that is unthinkable. Christ crucified. It is unthinkable that all true life lay in the Death of Messiah. That salvation has been committed to a Roman cross upon which he will die. And even if they don't immediately get that, there's no getting around the force of his words. He is going to die as a sacrifice and if they're going to live to God, they must make his sacrifice their own. They must receive of it by Faith. You say, I don't know, Brian. What precedent do they have for that kind of thinking? Just the Passover. Just the Passover. Do you remember the Passover? The remembrance of the Passover is near. Do you remember that in our text? Okay. And you remember how back in Exodus, that lamb would be what? Slaughtered. As a sacrifice. And how under the promise of deliverance, that blood then was to be painted over their doors. And how within their homes, they then roasted that lamb. And then they ate. Not just some of it, all of it. Like head and everything. Nothing was to be left behind. They took in that lamb. How God had committed to that sacrifice this grace of life which they had to act upon and they had to receive of by faith. And now here, as John the Baptist said earlier in the Gospel, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and, and now, on the precipice of Passover, never mind he mixed metaphors, bread and lamb, whatever, He Himself, this Lamb, this bread, is inviting them, not to the tight, but to the fullness Feed on me. And you and I will be one. And you will live forever. Be sure to see that in verse 57, that while Christ has life in himself from the living Father, we only get life in us as we're united to Jesus. There is no life in us, he says, but through faith in the mediator of divine life. Where that faith is exercised, we are nourished, not as those, he says, who are in the wilderness, who ate the manna and what? Died. We are nourished with a bread whose benefits... Never run out, never fade, never lose their lasting quality. Put plainly, once you've believed in Christ, you have taken to yourselves by the grace of God an atonement for sin and a justification. And a relationship with God, a divine favor, a union with Jesus, a victory over death, a life above nature, and so on, that is immortal. Unchangeable. Unlosable. Kept in heaven for you by God Himself. So... No one can believe in the crucified Christ apart from God's effectual grace. But you must believe in this crucified Christ to have eternal life. That's the hard saying. And as we come into verses 60 to 71, we see it wasn't difficult to accept for the disassociated only, but also for his. Disciples. Which brings us to an authenticating resolution. As we live in a day, many of you will know, uh, where many are deconstructing their faith. Or, really just constructing for themselves a Jesus whom their commitments and lifestyles can tolerate. These verses are then ripe with relevance. Do you hear them? Many of His disciples attended this discourse in the synagogue at Capernaum. They heard this almost sermon. And they could not tolerate. Again, they understand it just fine. But it's so against their flesh. It's so against their opinions. It's so contrary to their kingdoms. They cannot listen to it any longer. I recall sharing with a Jewish woman in these parts some time ago, it's been a while, probably over a decade now, very much along the lines of her need to believe in Christ crucified. And after I had closed with her, this is what she said to me, I still remember it. Sir, what you've just said to my soul feels like what I imagined it would feel like to have acid dripping on my flesh. Her words, not mine. And though sad, how apropos. Nothing attacks our flesh more violently than the need for the grace of God with Christ crucified right at the center. Nothing But at least she was no disciple of Jesus. Even in the nominal sense, as unfortunately these were. And when I say nominal, understand I am not, I am not legitimizing a nominal kind of Christianity. Jesus doesn't and we shouldn't. As He will, I'm saying that's no true Christianity at all. That nominalism asserts unbelief rather loudly. And at its core is this. You ready? They cannot stand the heat of Christ's word. That's it. They cannot endure the acid test of saving truth directly applied to them. It offends them, verse 61. It offends the pride of their flesh. Now, they may stick around for a while. They may stick around for a while while all is manna and miracles and miracles and manna. But once the grace of the cross becomes explicit, they're gone. Once the need To feed on Christ. Not just to have a little taste, but to feed on Jesus. To prioritize Him and to prioritize His gospel as the governor and engine of their lives becomes explicit. They're gone, they're offended. And as Jesus says, they've probably discerned that offense isn't going to lessen with time. It's only going to intensify. If you can't handle the cross, what about when God vindicates my cross? If my death for your life is totally intolerable, then what of my judgment of your rejection of it? Dear ones, the truth of the gospel is inherently offensive to an inherently erroneous human nature. I remind us of that just to say that in all of our sharing of the gospel, be as kind as you can possibly be. Be godly. Speak the truth. In love, we don't need to make the gospel more offensive than it already is. But knowing that, we need to make it our aim to let only the gospel offend. So let's watch our tone and let's watch our our goal in sharing the gospel. Let's pursue their souls and not just be seeking to validate or vindicate ourselves. Let Christ offend. Let Christ offend. If Christ offends and that's it, that's on them. It really is. And yet, if you look at verses 63-65, to Jesus brings us back to it, doesn't He? Though it comes with a bit of a new angle. What does He say there? He says, again, it is the Spirit who gives life. Of how much help is our flesh? None at all, Jesus says. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, and you do not believe because, verse 65, restating verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father grants them to do that. And so these disciples have come, but they've not really come to Christ. They've been amongst the twelve. They've been amongst the disciples, but they've never really been more than disciples in name only. Again, we've, we've really got to hear this. The authentication of your heart is in your response to the Word of Jesus. All of it. It's not at all, Nicodemus, in things your flesh can do. Your flesh can do a lot of religion. It may appear in the crowd of Christ. It may participate in religious activities. It may say really nice things about Jesus like Nicodemus did once upon a time. It may dabble in the Bible. Nicodemus was a great teacher of Israel, okay? It may go unnoticed as inauthentic even amongst true disciples who know the truth. It may even endure with Christ for a little while. But apart from divine grace, it will not endure to the end. with the biblical Jesus. It will not count the word of the cross all its life, even to death. It will not go all in with Jesus. It can't, Jesus says, because whether it shows initially or not, it is, at the end of the day, decidedly opposed to everything that would save it for all eternity. True faith requires a work of the Spirit. It takes the new birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again. It demands a a spiritual resurrection of the soul. Otherwise, even after this, you get verse 66. And please, do not be unmoved by what it tells us. It is... So heartbreaking. Hearing Jesus. It says, many of His disciples turned back. And no longer walked with Him. And so what was hard has sifted. For the most part, it separated fleshly pretenders from his faithful people. It separated fool's gold from true gold. It separated what was counterfeit from what was truly converted. And to clarify it positively for us, Jesus then asks the twelve, and I will now ask every single one of you, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, bless his heart, <laughs> gives us the great confession of a God given faith in Jesus. He says, Lord, to to whom shall we go? we got no one else. You're it. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ. So there it is. Whereas insincere disciples will always stow away some point of return from Jesus. Sincere disciples have thrown all of those points to the wind. In knowing Christ, for them, the world is forfeit. Listen, if you saw heaven right now, if you got just the, the first glimpse of glory right now, you would want no more of this world. And that is what grace has enabled the believer to see in Jesus. Heaven. So, the question Is never when or why might I ever desert Him. It is how could I ever. Knowing Him they know. Nothing falls from His lips but glory. Don't care how hard it is. It's life. It's love. It's good for me. All your words, Lord, lead me to you who is the heaven of heaven to me. Natural folks may imagine other options of life, but living folks know better. They know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And as is fitting then, Jesus gets the last word And it is a word, not to our surprise, I hope, at this point, that again exalts sovereign grace. For all that's right in it, Peter's words seem to persist in the notion that they will stick it out with Jesus because they, of their own ability, have made this great discovery. And Jesus thinks it prudent, apparently, not to let that go uncorrected. Some may call him a stickler for doing this. I call him my Lord and my Savior. He lets them know for their good that the only thing ultimately that has distinguished them from the others, Peter from a Judas, a true saint from a devil pretending, any of us from any unbeliever in all the world ever is the mere, free, sovereign, eternal, saving grace of our triune God. You have believed, true enough. But alas, did I not choose you? What is that? <laughs> I can't just let it alone. What is it? It's all the glory is going to my Father. And rightly received, it's all going to your security, all the way to glory. Why do you believe, friends? Why do you love his word, and why will you always love it? Why won't you forsake Jesus ever? Because you are It's not really even so much that He is yours as that you are His. How I pray we can thank God for that today. That from first to last, our salvation rests in the omnipotent hand of Christ. Friend, I'm thankful that you have put yourself in the way of grace this morning. And we as a body pray now, if you haven't been, that you would be born again. You must believe in Christ crucified and raised to have eternal life. And soon as you do, listen, soon as you do believe it, you will have eternal life. That's the promise. You want eternal life? There's nowhere else for you to go except straight away to Jesus. And church, that holds for us no less than for any unbeliever. John 6 has taught us about the sufficiency of Jesus. The divine, the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of His power, His care, His work, His words. The sad fact that most of the folks in our text who tasted of it here, tasted really nothing of it at the end of the day, gives occasion for you and I to ask ourselves on the back end of the chapter, have we tasted of it? For ministry, in trial, for the security of our souls, for life, For being a disciple, even if all the world turns away from Jesus, even if you're the only one left, is Christ your all in all? Are we feeding on the bread of life? Let's pray together. Lord, make your word to live. It is living and active. Please convince. By your kindness. Your mercy. Your grace. Please convince us. Every word. Of its truthfulness. You are faithful. Show yourself faithful to us again. Help us to be enduring believers. In all your word. We ask it in Jesus name and for your glory. Amen.